morning this morning. Wow, okay. Um, there are uh, usually, when I preach through a, a book, um, we try to do a half chapter a week. Um, sometimes we get there, sometimes we don't. Good majority of the times on Sunday mornings we do. But I'm warning you now, we aren't going to do that for the last half of 1 Thessalonians 5. And the reason why is because there's such a wealth of valuable, practical things that God talks to us about in the end of this chapter as he closes out uh, this first letter to the church at Thessalonica uh, that I just uh, feel like it's, it's really important for us to take some time and think through uh, the wonder, just wonderful, challenging truths that are found here uh, at the end of this book. So, um, so with that in mind, I won't take years on it, but uh, we are going to take probably a couple weeks and just look a little bit more closely at the truth we find starting in verse uh, in verse twelve and then on through the end of the chapter. So there you have it. Fair warning. So don't tell me I didn't tell you now. Uh, and we will get we will get move on to other things uh, shortly. But uh, uh, really, I think you'll find some very practical help from God's word in First Thessalonians five. I hope you'll be part of uh, the next few weeks as we uh, take time to dig into this uh, important truth. And yes, I know someone's patiently waiting for me to dismiss the young people. So young people, head on out. Young people weren't patiently waiting, but someone else was. The ones that's working with them, they're saying, let me out. Let me go. Let me go. All right. And I didn't say this, but Rosemary is uh, is with us again, the Farrington's, uh, Sandy's sister. So we're thankful for that. And she's moved to the area. And she's here today, so we're really glad for that. hope you uh, will, if you haven't yet greeted her, hope that you will. Didn't do that to embarrass her, just wanted you to know I'm, I'm glad you're here. It's good to have you. All right, you are there by now. You better be after all that time we took. First Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, we will, um, well, let's go ahead. We'll read starting. Actually, we'll do this. We'll start in verse 11, if you would, and follow along as I read just a few verses here. Bible says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Father, I thank you so very much for the privilege it is this morning to open your word to find the practical truth of Scripture laid out before us to help us in life. And this morning, I'm asking you to help us be attentive to the word, help me to uh, to bring forth your truth in an interesting way, in a, uh, in a way that your spirit can use the word of God clearly to help us understand what you expect from us. And may we live in light of the truth that's found in these verses. And I'll thank you for it. Lord, we need you to meet with us. We need your power. We need your spirit to move. We're thankful for your presence today, and we're counting on you to do a work in our hearts this morning. 
and meet our needs as we meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen. They say there was a story years ago about a little girl, beautiful little girl, who wandered away from her home, and she ended up in uh, the countryside where she lived, which happened to be uh, Canada. No one noticed that the girl was gone at first. Someone asked where she was, and, and obviously the family began to search around the home, then around the neighborhood, looking for this missing little girl. Their initial search was really in the neighborhood, but it turned up nothing, so uh, they began to call their neighbors and ask for help, and word quickly spread, as it often does in situations like that. Uh, before long, a number of people in, in, the, in that little community were all out looking all over the town just trying to find this little girl. Each person went their own way. Everyone searched, but no one found her. It was beginning to get dark when the, the, uh, the search went to a, an area they really believed that the girl probably was in now after they had pretty much canvassed the whole town. It was a vast field area on the outskirts of town, and, uh, and so the grass was tall. It was growing cold because Canadian nights can get very cold uh, in the fall. In the spring, I have to believe it happened in the fall. And so um, they started their search, and they started to look in this field. Well, nothing was turning up, and, and people were all over, it seemed like, but no one found anything. Well, a little bit later in the evening, one of the workers said, this just isn't working. Let's all join hands and let's start at one end and let's walk through the field and see what we can do. And so they did that. They began to join hands and walk through the field together in a line. And lo and behold, they found the girl huddled in a ball. But sad to say, it was too late to save her. It was truly a a, a sad sight. It was a sad time. They were all standing around in silence and someone cried out, if we had only joined hands earlier. If we had only joined hands earlier. You know, what was true of the community is, is true of the church. God's people need to join hands. God's people need to work together. God's people need to help one another. If God's people would join hands, as God describes, by the way, in these verses before us this, this morning, if God's people would join hands, great things could be accomplished for the glory of God. The challenge is to work together. And starting in verse, we could say technically verse 12, but really in verse 11, and actually before that, God is going to challenge us about this matter of just working together, all working hand in hand so that the work of God might go forward for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I do want you to understand, and I think we need to, before we get into the outline, and we start to look at what God expects and how we hold one another's hands, if you will. But before we get there, we kind of have to understand that everything is related to what we've been looking at or what we looked at last week. Now, that may seem a little bit strange to you, but it's very closely tied, at least according to what we read in verse 11, and then in verse 12, which is a continuation of thought. You notice, as we ended last week on verse 11, wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. 
the first word wherefore reminds us that what was found in verse 11 goes all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. God says he's coming again. The reality that he is coming again, though we don't know the time or the hour, is something that ought impact our lives and ought impact the way we act toward one another. That starts in verse 11. Comfort one another. Uh, here, hold hands, if you would, all right? And here's how we hold hands. We comfort one another, and we edify one another, or we build one another up. So this idea of helping people is all based on the fact Jesus is coming again. We don't know when it will be, but we need to be living as if he could come today. Now, as we live as if he could come today, we're going to be building on the matter of an increasing love in our lives. Going back to verse 8, we are going to be increasing and working on having faith. We are going to be working at and increasing our hope of salvation and, and focusing on those three things and building them in our lives. But we're also going to be working with God's people. And the tie in verse 11 continues when he says in verse 12, and we beseech you. So please understand this. Everything's related to EVS, that eternal value system that God wants you to have. It is. Everything in these verses that talks about how you're supposed to relate to God's people and work with God's people and be united with God's people, and if you will, as the illustration pointed out, holding hands with God's people so God's work can be done. As we, uh, we learn that, really, because Jesus is coming again. There's something else that's very important for us to note, and we said something about it last week, and it's this. You cannot hold hands with God's people as you ought. This church isn't going to be what, it's, what it ought to be. This church is not going to be the united body that God intends it to be unless you're part of the local church, unless you, you come to the local church. Because all the things that are talked about in this passage are things that are dealt with and will happen within the context of you being part of and being faithful to and getting to know God's people in the local church. They will. Look, you, you can't do what verses uh, 13 and 14 talk about in relation to those who are in authority at the church unless, get this, you're really, you're at church and you're involved in church. You can't do verse 14, and you can't do at least part of verse 15 unless you're part of and involved in and serving in a local New Testament church because these verses require that you be part of those things. Now, that wasn't part of the message, but those things need to be said. And we need to understand Jesus is coming again, and what is important to him, seriously, is our relationship to our local church. It's very important to him. Because he started in verse 11 and he said, you need to get along with God's people. You need to build God's people. You need to encourage God's people. Then in verse 12 and on, he says, you need to have a right relationship with God's people in the church and you need to help them be what God wants you to be. So today, please understand that God wants us to be people who are holding one another's hands, if you will. Okay? We're not going to sing kumbaya this morning, all right, and join hands after a service. But he wants us to be figuratively holding hands and working together. So let's see what God has for us today. And there are three things we're going to find in these verses, a request, a responsibility, a requirement. We probably won't get to all three today. Like I said, we're going to take a little bit of time. We'll see how far we get. We first find a request in verse 12, and we beseech you, brethren. 
there is a request, and the request actually is regarding authorities. So a request regarding authorities. And he, he tells us in verse 12 and in verse 13 uh, that there is a responsibility God's given to us in regard to those who would be authorities in a local New Testament church. Uh, this is a great message for a pastor to want to preach, you know. Because it tells, it tells me to tell you what you need to be doing as a people in regard to me. I like that. I like that. It's good. You know, this is one of those messages like, yeah, all right. This is wonderful. But you may think that uh, I'm just trying to pat myself on the back, but it's right there, okay? It's right there in Scripture. But let me begin by doing this because I find these verses challenging for me. And I'll tell you why I find them challenging for me because he says you're supposed to do some things in regard to your pastor. But in doing so, he also describes what a pastor is supposed to be doing. So I get to preach it myself first. That doesn't mean you can go to sleep on me either. But I get to preach it myself first, and I'd like you to see what God says about the pastor. I want you to see their description first. So here's the request regarding authorities. And the first thing I want you to see is their description. And do this, if you would, if you're taking notes. Put these letters right down in a row. W. O. W. Wow! That's your pastor. Wow! Okay, three things that God uses. I just, I, you know, it's so fitting that those letters just, just rolled right out. I, description of your pastor. Wow! Okay, all right. Thanks a lot. Okay, let me share with you the three things he shares about a pastor and, and gives them responsibility. We beseech you, brethren, to know them, which, notice the first thing, they labor among you. Work. A pastor is to labor. Uh, this word means to work hard, to toil, to be wearied by toil. A pastor who's doing his job will be tired in his work. Now, i got to tell you this. A lot of the pastor's work is, <laughs> that sounds good, mental, it, it is really in the mind and in the heart. There's not a lot of physical labor involved unless you're doing work in construction on a building, which uh, I know we've never done anything like that around here. Uh, but quite honestly, there. but it is a work, and God calls it a work. I remember once hearing about uh, some a pastor who was going to have to start working a job because uh, his his position and because things in the church weren't going well, and he was talking with one of his deacons in the church, and he just said, "You know, uh, I really, I, I you know, I, I know I have to work, but I, I really would hope that uh, uh, you know this won't be something I have to do all that long because, uh, quite frankly, the pastor said, you know, I, I haven't." prepared for any other skill in life where I can get another job. And the man, the deacon, said this to his pastor. He said, well, I think that if my kids were going to go into the ministry, I'd have them learn a skill, a marketable skill, because having a marketable skill is important in life to have something to fall back on. Well, let me tell you something. The ministry is a work. It's a, it is a job. It is a job, and it takes a marketable skill to do. And there's some people, obviously that deacon being one, who don't understand that truth. 
Now you say, Pastor, is it really work? Come on. Come on. All pastors do is go golfing and they go out to eat all the time. At least you always tell us you go out to eat all the time. So I know that most pastors do that. And you talk about golf every once in a while. It's been a long time. But uh, yeah, that's true. I do talk about golf and I do go out to eat a lot. But that's not all pastor does. And if that's all a pastor does, he's not a good pastor. We say, come on, pastor, really? Is, is that what God is talking about here? Well, then take a moment, if you would, and I just want you to see it. Turn to the book of Ephesians. Turn to the book of Ephesians. And this verse is kind of scary for me to bring out and read to you, and I'll explain it in a moment. Because you might think that this might you know, be a, an application, the first part, and it's not. But there's something in the verse is going to help us. He said this, let him that stole, in verse 28, steal no more. Now, a pastor isn't a thief. I just want you to know that's not the comparison this morning. But he said this, but rather let him, and what's the next word? Labor. Working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Person that steals doesn't work for what he gets. Right? So the point is, God is saying to a guy who, who has been a thief, get a job. Learn to work. Do you, do you understand that? Like anyone would do. Any kind of work. Just get a job, learn to work, and earn what you do. Do you know God uses the same word over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he talks about a pastor? He says a pastor labors. He works. He toils. A good pastor works. Wow, he works. That's the first responsibility a pastor has. And it is true that a pastor can grow lazy, just like anyone can on their job. Some people can try to get out of work. I just read about one the other day, this girl who worked for um, a hotel chain, and, uh, and her, her work, she considered, was not working. And she actually recorded in, in a, a book how she got away with not working. And she did it every day at work. So while she was at work, she would be recording how she got out of this and how she got out of that. And she actually did that. And, and her boss found out. So the boss said, you can't be writing any longer while you're on the job. I don't know, maybe she was at the desk, you know, and, and she didn't do, she tried to get away with everything she could possibly get away with. So she stopped doing that. So you know what she did? She got on the computer and she started to, she started to type her reasons why or how she was getting out of work. Seriously. And it was like, I, I think it ended up being like 15 pages, single space, typed about how she had gotten out of work. And then she was fired from her job and she applied for unemployment. And the reason why they knew, knew that this actually was happening was because the employer got the computer, took the information down to unemployment and said, we're not going to pay a penny. And unemployment agreed. Some people work at not working. You know what I mean by that? You, you have some workers like that in the job... But when God describes the matter of the pastor, he says a pastor is supposed to work. That should be challenging to me. It should be a reminder to God's people as well that a, that a pastor isn't just going out and, and having a good time all day. There is work involved. There's work involved in preaching the word. There's work involved in dealing with people. There's work involved in so many different ways, in planning, even activities and other things like that. 
There's work. The second thing you see about a pastor, uh, and, and is important for me to be reminded as well, not only do they labor among you, but what does God say in verse 12? To know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So the second word is oversee, oversight, work, oversight. Those are things that a pastor is supposed to do. What does it mean when a pastor is over you? Listen to me. I'm in charge. Uh, there are some pastors like that. Um, you say, you pastor. Well, I try not to be that way. Uh, I really I really do. If Most of the time, if I do something like that, I'm just kidding. But the phrase over you doesn't indicate a number of things. First, it doesn't mean the pastor is more intelligent than anyone. And you will say, no, I knew that would come. Thank you, Brother Umstead. I heard yours first. Okay. Second, um, the second is doesn't mean they're superior to anyone. Uh, the third thing that's important to say, because some don't understand this either, they're not deserving of worship from anyone. What it does mean is that he's supposed to preside. The word literally means to stand before, to lead, to direct, to attend to, to preside. And all of those things are part of the responsibility of a pastor. And, and that is a great responsibility. Let me show you another place, since I said we're taking some time on these. Let me show you another place where this word is found. Turn to 1 Timothy 3, would you please? 1 Timothy 3, that's not too far away. And God talks about the office of a bishop, would be, which would be the office of, of a pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He also deals with the office of, or, or, the, um, or deacons. He doesn't say call it an office, by the way. He does call it an office for a pastor, but he doesn't a deacon. But he talks about pastors and about deacons. And um, in this passage and in these, uh, in these verses, he tells us something. Look, if you would, in verses 4 and 5. He says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Look, if you would, in verse... Uh, let me see if I can find it real quickly. I think it's in verse 12. Yes, in verse 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. There are various ideas about how a church is supposed to be run. A lot of ideas out there about how a church is supposed to be run. There are presbyteries that run the Presbyterian church. The presbytery chooses a pastor for a church. And, that, and they actually have rule. And, and quite honestly, the church owns the church property, everything else, because there's this ruling body that, if you would not, provides, presides. There we go. I knew I was going to get the word out. Presides over the whole thing. Um, there's other ideas. In churches like ours, in Baptist churches, there's idea of congregational rule, where uh, there are all sorts of committees. And in these committees, these people run different parts of the church. And congregational rule, the idea that God has designed for the church is that there's someone who presides, someone who oversees. Now, if there are committees to help that, if there are uh, deacons who aid and help the pastor, the idea is that, though, someone has to have oversight. You say, 
Well, pastor, you're just patting yourself on the back. No, no. The word rule, how a man is supposed to rule over his own family, is the same word that God used here in this passage when he said a pastor has the job of oversight. Don't you find that interesting? You don't expect me, you wouldn't expect me as a dad, would you, to say, okay, kids, we're going to vote. We're going to vote on this. We're going to vote on whether we're going to go to church today. And so everyone has one vote because we're just a community working together. Would you expect me to do that? See, because I would be, I mean, it would be like now, it's just two of us. It would be, I'd be in trouble. No, my wife would be voting in favor of going to church, and I would be saying, nope, we're not going You know, who's going to cast the deciding vote? No, the truth is someone's got to oversee. In the home, God says a a dad is supposed to rule his home. You agree with that, don't you? He is. Some dads don't. That's a message as well. Probably another message for another time. But it is an important message. A dad is supposed to rule. He's supposed to preside in his home. It means he has the charge of it, and he makes decisions, and he says, this is the way it has to be and is going to be. doesn't mean it doesn't seek his wife's advice, just like it doesn't mean a pastor doesn't seek the advice of a good godly deacon or good men and good, and good people who have wisdom that he might not have about situations and things. But here's the truth. The same idea of a father ruling his home is the idea that God says is supposed to be taking place as in, in the church. The pastor is supposed to oversee. And whether the pastor sees fit to have others that are um, in committees and other things like that helping, or whether there are other things that are going on in a church, if a pastor doesn't oversee, he's not doing his job. And oversight means to do that very thing, to preside over something, to make sure. And ultimately, there are decisions that have to be made. And ultimately, those fall upon the one that God has given that responsibility to oversee the work of God. Now, again, that's not my idea. I'm not just trying to pat myself on the back. This is what God says, and these are the words God used to describe a pastor's job. So, wow, wow, pastor's supposed to work. Pastor's supposed to oversee. The third W is found back in our passage again in verse 12. And he says, they are over you in the Lord. You see that last phrase says this, and admonish you. Yeah, you see, someone thought I was going to use the letter A. I'm not. Warn, because that's what the word does mean, to warn. The admonish, word admonish means to warn people. In many modern-day churches, warning people is frowned on. Um, some pastors won't deal with some subjects from the pulpit because they're negative or they might offend someone. Some pastors today uh, preach messages, and by the way, they preach messages, I want to be careful that people understand this, they preach messages from the Word of God, but they only deal with certain subjects, and they're only encouraging, uplifting messages that make everyone feel good. Now, um, some of those are needed every once in a while, aren't they? Say, Pastor, give us some. Okay, all right, all right, that's true. But God's people need warning. And a godly pastor does that. A godly pastor says right is right and wrong is wrong, and and the direction you're going and what's happening in your life is is not pleasing to the Lord. And and you you need to go the right direction. 
That's not popular. I know that. And today it's actually really is frowned upon in many places. It's criticized by many. Some won't deal with controversial subjects, preach about sin anymore. And the reason why is because they've forgotten about their job. Um, if a little child was walking toward the stove with their eyes on a pot where there's water boiling, what's mom going to do? Warning! Don't touch! I don't know if the child's real close. Probably going to yell it, right? If the child's just going that direction, she might say, don't go there. She might say, hot, don't touch, if they're far enough away. If they're close, mom's probably even going to be diving, if that would be the case, to make sure the child doesn't touch that. Because there's danger. And the mother knows that, and the mother cares. She's warning him of danger. Is she bad? No, she's doing what a mom's supposed to do. Am I right? Well, what mom would you think? So, yeah, go ahead, touch it. You'll learn. <laughs> Won't do that again. You wouldn't do that. A dad might sit down with a teenager and, and talk about moral purity. Um, that's not an easy thing to talk about, but needs to be talked about. He might warn his son or daughter about keeping themselves pure and clean. A dad might get with a child who's not maybe choosing good friends and say, you need to have some different friends. Warning! Because having the wrong friends could indeed ruin a life and, and lead a child the wrong direction. Am I right? can do the same for an adult. So a dad might warn of those things. Is he a bad dad because he warns? No, he's doing his job. That's what parents do. And get this, that's what a pastor does. A pastor warns. Do you know the word in admonition that's found in this passage is found in Ephesians 6, 4 when he says, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the admonition of the nurture and admonition. That word admonition, the second word, is a word found in this passage. Literally means to put into the mind, but it, also, it involves both admonition, this is wrong, warning, don't do this, it involves correction. It also involves positive instruction, admonition. That is what a pastor is supposed to do. So, your pastor, man, wow. He's to warn, he's to oversee, uh, he is as well to work. So that's his description. But this morning, would you see your duty? Because in verse 12, it wasn't written to pastors. Um I don't know, maybe the pastors at Church at Thessalonica didn't need that message that day, per se. And what the people needed was to understand that, okay, these men are doing this, so here's what you need to know. All right, what does God tell you then? Well, I'm going to give you a pep talk. Write P-E-P -E under your duty. P-E-P. -E your pep talk this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter uh, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And your pep talk is, first of all, perceive. Perceive. Notice what he says. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them. The idea is to see with the idea of perception. It's not that you meddle in the affairs of the pastor. I'm going to find out everything the pastor's doing. I'm going to watch his life. I'm going to observe him. And I'm going to see if there's anything that I can criticize and get them right about. 
See, Brother Umstead already does that, so you don't need to do that. <laughs> he doesn't. I'm, I'm teasing, as I always do with Brother Umstead. All right? But uh, to know your pastor, to be aware of their... Here's the idea. That you're aware of their job, that they work, that they are have the responsibility of admonishing or warning, that they have the responsibility of oversight, that you understand these things, you observe when it is done, and then the idea is that you accept their role in these areas and acknowledge it. Okay, I understand. This is what our pastor is supposed to be doing. I may not appreciate it right now. Hey, listen, if, if I came to your home and I gave you warning, if I got up and I made a decision that wasn't popular with the entire church, uh, you might not uh, you might not feel all that great about the pastor being an overseer, right? Aren't there time? There are times you might, may not understand this because I know you've never felt this way, but there are times people don't like their pastor, and sometimes sometimes it's because their pastor's wrong. And by the way, if their pastor is wrong, he should be disciplined, just like anyone else in the church. If a pastor is found to be immoral, he should be disciplined. If a pastor is found to be um, lording it over the sheep and not doing what he's supposed to do, if a pastor is found and he's not doing his job, he's not working, he's not getting into the word and feeding God's people, you know what? Truth is, he should be removed. God never put him on a pedestal and said, you don't ever question anything he does. Well, what he does say is, he says, he's got a job to do and you do. And part of your job is just learning, trying to perceive as best you can. And I know it's hard because the truth is, I don't understand what some of you do at work. And I don't mean that to be funny or serious. I don't understand what you do at work. And I can't always appreciate what you do at work, just like you don't know what I do at work and you can't always appreciate it. It's true. We can't always understand. Walk a mile in someone's shoes. What, what kind of crazy stuff is that? You can't always understand what someone's life is all about. But here's what God does say. As best as you can, perceive that this is his job. And as best as you know, it seems like and it appears like he's doing that. Then acknowledge it and accept it and be willing to say, okay, he's doing what God has called him to do, whether I like it or appreciate it or not. That's what it means to know. And quite frankly, these two verses, if they were preached in every church, it would help a lot of churches be what God wants them to be. I am not preaching this because I'm preaching this because we're getting into it, not because it's it's needed, per se. I think there are, I think that most people, if not all people here, understand what the the job of a pastor is, the role of a pastor is, what he's supposed to do, and I would hope that people would be willing to say, you know, pastor, I, I, here's something I'd like to talk with you about. I don't really know if I, you know, if I'm seeing this, help me understand. But then. I believe there's that most everyone here has this an attitude that says, I do understand, and I am trying to understand better what God has called him to do, and I'm going to support him as much as I can. That's what it carries the idea of, knowing, perceiving what's going on. Now, you can't do it, but sometimes just observing and paying attention will help. I'll give you an illustration. My brother Paul used to referee basketball games on Saturdays. 
in, in our town, we had leagues of various ages, and they would. Uh, my brother learned how to referee basketball. He was just a, a teen. I was like uh, 16 or 17, and they would hire him on Saturday mornings, and that was a way that he made money for college. And so he'd go in and he'd referee, referee these basketball games. Well, you know, um, refereeing basketball games, especially as a, as a teenager uh, with a bunch of kids in a, a, a youth program, is a tough thing and has nothing to do with the kids on the court. Do you know who it has to do with? Okay, uh, coaches <laughs> and parents. Sometimes you happen to be both, all right? Coaches and parents. Uh, the, the referee has a bigger problem with them than with the kids. Now, um, his job was made really, really hard when a coach was complaining about all his calls. It was even worse when parents were on the sideline yelling, sometimes ob obscenities, at the referee who was blind and couldn't see anything, needs glasses. He was wearing glasses, but anyway, needs new glasses. Um, one lady was jumping all over my brother for most of the game, calling him blind, criticizing his lack of calls against the opposing team and any call that he made against her son's team. And he finally had it. He turned to her. He said, if you think you can do a better job, do it yourself. She said, Okay. Well, that, you know, took him back a little bit. So he pulls off his whistle, handed it to her. Be glad to have you do it. And so she walks out on the court. She's going to be the referee of the game. So uh, so she takes the ball and hands it to, I don't know, it was someone passing the ball in. And my brother, my brother sat down in her seat, and he started yelling. Exactly what the lady had been doing. Oh, come on, get the game moving. Let's go. Uh, you know, a ball is thrown, a call, a call is made, or, or a call wasn't made. Can't you see the foul, lady? So he does this for about three or four minutes. And the lady obviously was frustrated. And the whole time, he's just yelling at her all the calls she missed, all the calls that she should have made, uh, all the calls that she made that were bad. And he went over to her uh, a few minutes later. And he says, you're doing a lousy job. He grabbed the whistle. He said, go sit down. Didn't have any problem from that lady again. But the lady needed to know something. She needed to perceive that the job, first of all, wasn't as easy as she thought it was. She needed to perceive that he was doing the best he possibly could. She needed to perceive that what she was doing was hurting the work. That makes sense? That was going on on the court. And hurting the game her son was playing in, or hurting her son. She just needed to perceive some things. She needed to know some things. She learned. Now, I'm not going to have you prepare a message if you got a problem. But I will say this the best you can. It helps if you learn to perceive. Learn to understand. Here's what a pastor's supposed to do. And in fact, he gives you kind of that whole list when he says to know them. Know that this that they're supposed to warn. Know that they're supposed to work. Know that they're supposed to uh, oversee. And then acknowledge that and let them do it. No. 
So your pep talk, first thing in your pep talk is perceive. The second thing we see in verse 12, he says, Know them which are at labor among you and over you in the Lord and admonish you. And verse 13 tells us the second thing. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That means, to, well, esteem. We had the actual letter in there. Part of your pep talk is perceive and then to esteem. Esteem means to account, to deem, to consider. The challenge here is for you to think differently about the pastor, about those in authority. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, God says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. What does that mean? It means that someone in their thinking in Philippians chapter 2 is to think of someone differently. Esteem them better. In other words, I'm not going to put myself up. If anything, I'm going to lift them up. It's changing your thinking. Change the way you, 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 you look at them and you consider what they do. That word is the same that's used here. Change how you think about them. And it's talking about a specific way. Esteem them very highly in love for their Work's sake. He goes back and says, this is their job again. He says, work two times. And he says, look, here's what, you need to think differently about the work that they're doing and esteem them highly. Not because they're special, but because they're doing God's work in God's church. And because they are, we're going to hold them up, we're going to lift them up, and we're going to think highly of them as much as we can. Now, uh, some, some people worship their pastor. I, I've been in churches like that. Have you been in a church like that? You know, it's like, it's like he's, he's untouchable. He's got, you have never made me feel that way. I just want you to know that. <laughs> We're teasing this morning, all right? Um, but but uh, the truth is you're to esteem them highly in love. You're to, to lovingly uh, think highly of the job that God has called them to do when they when they do it. Someone explained it this way, and here's the wording. I think it was Albert Barnes. He wrote, the highest respect with an affectionate regard. And the reason why is because he's doing work for God. Again, I, I want to say it because it has to be said. The pastor isn't above reproach. It's possible he's not doing his job of feeding the flock, giving himself to prayer. It's possible he may have some sin in his life. And do you know 1 Timothy chapter 5 talks about that, and he says, those that sin rebuke before all. There is a proper perspective. But this passage was dealing with people in the church, and he said, people know them. And not only know them, not only perceive that, but then esteem them highly and love for their work's sake. And then God gives one other command at the end of this verse. Verse 13 says, and be at peace among yourselves. So the last part of your pep talk is to be at peace. Do you know a lot of ministry issues are about people who aren't getting along? No, that never happens. Uh, no, it does happen. I am... I, I, I am truly thankful for the spirit that's present in our church. 
I'm thankful for how God's people, I believe, get along. I, I will say this. I know it's true. We can work on it. We can improve on it. Getting along with one another, being at peace with one another. People can get miffed about all sorts of things. And by the way, I also know this, that peace can go away real fast in a church. It just takes one person who gets bent out of shape. It can change the whole spirit of a church in the direction that it's going. It can take one person who says, yeah, well, he said that about me, or she said that about me, or he did that, or she acted that way, and she talked about me. And man, the, the, the spirit in a church can just go, <laughs> you, you don't believe that to be true. You haven't been in churches I've been in. At least in my lifetime, I've seen it, where gossiping, grudging people, uh, people fighting over matters has ruined a work that was striving and moving forward for the glory of God. And it's all because people stopped working at what God talks about in Romans chapter 12. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. So look, work at that. Let me explain it this way. Uh, here's, here's a question for you. If there is a fire in a place where it's not supposed to be, what does that do? If someone came into the building today and, this would be horrible, but their, their clothes were on fire, what would that do? I mean, even if we were, you were all sitting here, you know, slumbering on Sunday morning. No, you're not. All right. But here, if someone right now came in those doors and their clothes were on fire, what would happen? You wouldn't all sit here listening to the pastor continue to preach. And by the way, I wouldn't keep preaching, would I? Because everyone's attention would be where? On that guy or that girl, whoever it is, and putting the fire out. If, in the middle of the message, you started seeing in the frosted windows something, I mean, just, you know, flames going up. Our new air conditioning unit <laughs> is on fire. Okay. Would that have any impact upon what's going on in the service? You, you know, I'd be, I'd be seeing you, and you would all be, well, you wouldn't be smiling, but you'd be, you'd be, you'd be concerned, right? If someone turned on the light switch and one of the lights blew up and, and started into, you know, went into flames, okay, the moment that happens, Everything changes. The game changes. Let me tell you, gossiping, complaining, murmuring in a church is like a fire out of place. It takes the tension of people away from where it needs to be and puts it, sadly, on something that has to be, attention has to be given to it. And when you're not at peace with God's people, when you're causing strife amongst God's people, let me tell you something pastor and those in authority in the church are distracted from doing the work God wants them to do. And quite frankly, I think this third thing is one of the most important things that people misunderstand. If we just work at getting along with one another, and we would seek to be at peace with one another, and we would deal with issues that we have with one another, and that we would seek to resolve those things, and we would do that as a people individually because, look, we just love God's people, and we want to be together as God wants that allows the pastor to give his attention not to the fire that's raging between two people, 
but to the work that needs to be done for the glory of God. Do you see the, the point, the illustration, how fire takes your attention away from what, what could be done, what should be done, what might be accomplished? Because it's not in the right place and it has to be dealt with. And so it is when people aren't getting along as they need to get along in the church. So be at peace among yourselves. So there you have it, a, peace, a, a pep talk for you, a peace talk. Yeah, we have a peace talk this morning. A pep talk for you. Discord causes the attention to be on people and putting the fire out rather than the work of God going forward. So as far as your pastor is concerned, wow! As far as you this morning, there's your pep talk from God about what he wants and what he desires for you. And, um, and I, think, I think there's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for me as a pastor as I go, go over these things to remind myself this is what God wants me to do. But the truth is I'm part of this church too, and it's a challenge to me. Well, I already perceive what the pastor is doing, all right? I already understand the oversight and things, but you know what else I can work at? Being at peace with God's people. So, um, I know we didn't get far, but these things, sadly, are the cause of a lot of problems in the church because people don't follow two verses in Thessalonians. They don't understand them. They don't practice them. This morning, I am not going to have a come forward invitation after my pep talk. But what I am going to ask you to do is to think about what you're doing in the local church to help the church be what God wants it to be. Because the truth is, all of us need to hold hands. All of us need to work on this. Because if there's just a few that go the wrong direction or carry things the wrong direction, it affects the whole body. So the church needs you. Needs you involved. You, by the way, you can't do these things if you're not. It needs you to get to know people, needs you to invest in people, needs you to learn about your pastor. And by God's grace, I, I hope we will, that all of us will be what God describes in these verses. That I as a pastor will do my job, that you as a people will do your job before God so that this work can be what God wants it to be. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Yeah. <laughs>